We are going to be back in Philippians today, this morning, looking at chapter 3. We're going to look at the first three verses, but really kind of only focus on maybe the first two, probably, is all we're going to get to today. Um, and since it's, it's actually been a while since we started uh, going through Philippians, when I've been up here, that's what I've been uh, going through. I think I started it about two and a half years ago. And since it's been a while, let's take a, I want to take a little bit of time and remind you, remind, let's remind ourselves about some important history about the city of Philippi. But as we do that, I need to let you know I have an ulterior motive in that what I'm, I'm doing this will help you get familiar with Philippi, but also I'd like to use it to serve as an illustration for what we're going to be looking at today, what Paul's going to be uh, teaching us today. Philippi, as you may know or may remember, was essentially, uh, was essentially it was founded um, by Philip of Macedon, uh, the, the, father, the father of Alexander the Great in about 356 BC. Um, it was originally a small village named Crinides, but Philip fortified that little village and he renamed it, renamed it after himself. The Romans conquered Philippi in the second century BC, and they incorporated into, uh, it into the entire Roman province of Macedonia. And then in 42 BC, that's the important date, that's when it became, uh, that's what put it on the map, that's when it became an incredibly important place in Roman culture and Roman history and even world history, as it was the site of the last great battle of the Roman of the Republican War when Antony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius. This battle is actually known as the Battle of Philippi, and it marked the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. Octavian, who's later known better to us as Augustus, as Caesar Augustus, became emperor officially about 13 years later in 29 BC. That was two years after he defeated his former ally Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium. Octavian then Octavian honored the city of Philippi, and he sent many Roman colonists to live there. So over the period of about two centuries, Philippi went from being a captured territory of Rome to being an honored Roman colony, where all of its citizens had the honor of being Roman citizens. And as, and as such, they were given certain privileges, as well as being exempt from paying certain taxes. They were proud of their status as Roman citizens, and the Philippians uh, copied and mimicked all of Roman culture from, uh, that, that, we, that, we've, that we've found uh, from practices, uh, from different Roman practices to Roman architecture to Roman clothing, uh, the currency that they had and the official sites, the official sites in Philippi, they all bore the marks of Roman inscriptions. With, so, so with that in mind then, knowing that it's not surprising that the cult of emperor worship seemed to be prevalent throughout the entire city by the time Paul first arrived there and established the church in Philippi during his second missionary journey around 52 AD. So by this time, they've had about 90 years of being a proud Roman colony. And when Philippi was first established... So thinking of that, and then moving on to it being captured and then occupied by Rome, there were probably few who thought at that point that it would be a culture that would one day have so many who are not only overjoyed and even boastful about their connection to Rome, but even worshiping the Roman emperor. Rome was great at this. They were really good at this. Rome would allow its conquered peoples to keep just enough of their customs and just enough of their former government that they all ended up generally complying fairly well. They would allow them to have some sort of semblance of their old culture so that they would line up and appreciate being Roman citizens quicker. 
Rome even took many of the Greek religious practices as they conquered Greek city after Greek city, and they just Romanized them so that they were, they were familiar religious practices, but they weren't quite the same. And the people did not perceive that what was going on was any type of threat, and it was much easy, much easier for them to be conquered. To first have to first be conquered in a military sense, and then have their minds conquered also, without them even really realizing it. It's much easier. In fact, because of the honor shown to Philippi. They were now proud to be counted as a Roman colony, and by this point in time, they wouldn't even think of themselves any longer as a conquered Greek city. They were only a proud Roman colony. The lesson learned here is you spend more and more time, is that as you spend more and more time in a culture that doesn't appear to be overly antagonistic and is willing to give you just enough of your normal life, There doesn't really seem to be much of a reason to fight anymore. In fact, it just seems easier, and actually maybe even better, to just kind of go along with it. It's not that different. It's not that different. It's not that bad. After a while, you don't even notice anymore. Now, the reason that we are going over this bit of history of Philippi, again, it's not actually because it's extremely contextually relevant to our passage today, but rather because I think it serves as such a great historical illustration of what happens when people are surrounded by a culture that is in fact hostile and deceptive, but with the passing of enough time and with enough compromise, they find themselves totally embracing a new identity, embracing a new kingdom one that is actually entirely different and opposed to the kingdom that they were originally serving. And we, as I'm sure you're aware, are in a similar danger in our culture today. There are several streams of false teaching that do not look to be overtly opposed to Christianity and the mission of the church. At least they would never claim to be. Rather, they use similar language They want to offer some sort of olive branch that makes it look like they want to get along. They want to bring you in. It's not going to be that bad. It's an olive branch laced in poison. We talk about all the parts of Christianity that are wonderful too. right? And they they would never speak ill of Jesus Christ. In fact, they like quoting Him also. They're actually Christians... And there are actually churches everywhere that seem to have accepted this olive branch by agreeing to, and you see these pastors go on Oprah or on Anderson Cooper, and they still get to talk about a lot of the great things about God and about Christ that they've always liked talking about, and all they've had to do is just kind of compromise a little on a few things. It seems like the best of both worlds to them. You get to hold on to most of your core beliefs, just like you always have, and you get treated like a full citizen of this new culture with all the privileges that come with it. You get to have an opinion that matters and that counts. After a while, the idea of going back, when you're in that place, after after a while, the idea of going back to that old way of thinking seems ridiculous. You become quite comfortable in this new version of your kingdom, which just so happens to be a completely different kingdom. In our passage this morning, Paul is warning the Philippian Christians of the danger of some particular false teachers. Again, I want to reiterate that that he is not trying to warn or rebuke them for how the Philippian culture changed from Greek to Roman over time. Again, I just use that as an example because it's such a clear picture of how false teaching infiltrates and slowly influences and changes people over time. They're not careful 
If they're not on their guard against this false teaching, it will take over and change their church until it is no longer truly a church. The same way that Rome came in and slowly infiltrated and conquered the Greek city of Philippi until it became the proud Roman colony of Philippi. In a similar way, we too are in this precarious place where false teaching is running rampant in our society and in evangelicalism in general. And the slide is slide into it is so easy. And the pull towards it is so strong. The, the immediate benefits of compromising are so tempting that there is by far and away at this point in time more false Christian teaching in our country than true Christian teaching. And it's by an incredibly large margin. Paul actually says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13 that evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We, We should expect false teaching to get worse and worse and more and more prevalent. Our gracious Heavenly Father knew this was going to be the case. And He provided us all that we need in the sufficient Scripture to keep from falling ourselves. The Bible has so much to help us to navigate through these difficult waters, and we have one such passage before us today. So, today... From this section of Scripture, we're going to see three essential practices for those who are regularly dealing with false teaching. Three essential practices for those who are regularly dealing with false teaching. And you should know now, just so you don't stress out here towards the end, that I'm only going to get to two of them today. We'll do the next one next week. I'll only get through two of them. We'll expand on the third one next week. Now look with me. At our passage, read, let, read with me Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. It's pretty evident in this passage as you read it. Paul is, Paul is clearly, certainly, shifting gears to a new subject. And it seems kind of sudden and abrupt. In fact, in our English Bibles, it looks like he's about to finish the letter like if you, if you just covered that part of your Bible and you just got to 3.1 and maybe 3.2 started on the next page, you'd think, oh, he's wrapping it up here. That, that's what's going on. In our English Bibles, it looks like he's about to finish the letter and then, he's, and then suddenly, out of seemingly nowhere, he breaks into name-calling and, and warnings of the evils of false teaching. Where, where did that come from? Some people believe that Paul was was just about to wrap up writing the letter and decided to take a break of some sort. And then a bunch more stuff started coming to him, so he just started to throw it in to the letter. Uh, Or he was reminded of some more important stuff, and he came back and just after a brief time away and just started writing again, and he just completely wasn't even thinking about what he just wrote. Just now, I've got this other thing. It's it's almost like the the modern-day equivalent uh, and this happens to me a lot because I'm slow at texting, but it's, it's like the modern day equivalent of replying to someone's text message, you know, but you, you think about it for a while and you start typing this long response. And then while you've spent all this time typing it out, they send you another text before you, you've sent it. And it's got a completely different question. Like they don't even care about the first one anymore, right? But, but you spent all this time on this other answer, So you send it anyway, along with the new answer, and it just kind of seems confusing. Many commentators believe that Paul is doing something like that here. 
that he was in the middle of composing a letter and he was just rejoicing in all of his thoughts about the Philippians. And then he, he said, you know what, I'm going to finish the letter uh, later. I'm, I'll, I'll sign it here in a little bit. Or maybe it was all ready for his signature. And then, and, and then he had like a visitor or something or a conversation that made him suddenly change his whole tone and suddenly shift into a state of panicked warning. And even though, if that was the case, that would, that would not cease to make it any less authoritative scripture. That's not what is going on here. Even though it might seem like Paul begins his final greeting in 3.1 and then suddenly shifts into a bunch of warnings, the, the two verses are actually connected. And you can see it there. It's true that Paul is beginning a new section. But the Greek word that is translated as finally it doesn't necessarily have to mean the same thing that we typically mean with the English word finally that, that we often use to translate it with. When we use the word finally, right, it typically means that we are making the final point in a series of points or we're concluding the argument. Like, here, here, here's what I'm wanting to tell you. First, this. Second, this. Third, this. Finally, this. I bet... That, that's how we think of it, but that, that's not what the Greek word translated here has to mean. It can mean that, but it doesn't have to. Here it means, as it often does, something along the lines of furthermore, or, or even, even more literally, it could be rendered as for the rest. Like, so it does mark a, it is meant to mark a shift, a big shift in thinking, but not necessarily the, like the final couple of sentences type of thinking. So it doesn't necessarily mean that someone is wrapping something up, as Paul clearly is not doing. You can see in there that I'm going to be in Philippians for quite a few more sermons, right? He's not wrapping this up. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mark, it does indeed mark a clear transition into an extended section that warns against false teachers. And verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, is the first part of that warning, even though it might not seem like that starts until verse 2. So if you, if, you, if you have that understanding, if you know that the word finally, uh, what, what that means, then it's pretty easy to see the connection between verses 1 and 2, actually. Because if you look at the verse, or at the end of verse 1, look what he says. He says that writing the same things to you is, n is not only no trouble, but it is safe, or a safeguard for you. That language is perfectly keeping in step with warnings of the dangers of false teaching. That makes perfect sense why he would use that language. So verse 1, that is, that's where we're going to see our first point. Our first point, our first essential practice for those who are regularly in the midst of false teaching, we need to be reminded regularly. We need to be reminded regularly. Again, look at what he says in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me. There is some disagreement about what exactly Paul has in mind when he says the same things. What, what, is, he, what is he referring to? But everyone agrees, all commentators agree, that in this statement, Paul is essentially recognizing that he understands that the Philippians have surely noticed by now in his instructions to them that he is repeating a lot of the same things. And you may have been noticing that in my preaching as I've been going through Philippians. I'm just following Paul. That's what I'm doing. And, and so, so there, he's, the, the commentators believe this is, this is what he is doing. It's obvious he's noticing this. And that if they're paying attention, if the Philippians are paying attention, it might even seem awkward to them by now. Like, rejoice always. I got it. We've got the rejoice thing, Paul. Maybe he must have taken a lot of breaks while writing. So they're thinking something along the line. Maybe they're thinking that. He's acknowledging this. So he's acknowledging, I know that I've done this. And he's not apologizing for it. And in fact, he's saying that it is something that they need 
You need the same things. Hearing the same things over and over again is actually exactly what they need in the face of false teaching. Paul, unlike so many of the false teachers of our day especially, he feels no need to come up with new content to tell the Philippians something that they have never heard before. He understands that what they need to hear, what is best for them, is to hear the same timeless truths, the same timeless instruction over and over and over again. Maybe to put it in a different way or to use or to use other examples, maybe he does that, but he's not looking for a bunch of innovative new ideas. Paul never says to any of the churches, we're going to try something new here. He does not do that. Paul, Paul would make for a terrible pastoral interview in contemporary evangelicalism because he doesn't have some sort of fresh new vision. As Paul enters into this section, which warns against false teaching, he says that what you need, what will keep you safe around even the most deceptive false teachers is to be reminded regularly of the same wonderful truths that you have been told over and over, that you know. And this makes so much sense right at the beginning of this section. I was half tempted to do an entire sermon just on this. Because when, when someone looks at the core truths of the Christian faith, the, the timeless doctrine that is represented through all of the faithful confessions throughout Christian history, when they hear the clear and undiluted gospel message, when they see and understand these things, and then they start asking questions like, hmm, how else can we help people? What else would be good for them to know? What's going to get people to come to church in this day and age, in these circumstances? What can I say that would be new and exciting? When pastors and teachers start asking these types of questions, the result is not, and it never is, new and innovative ministry. The result is always heresy. The result is the beginning of the very false teaching that Paul is warning us against by telling us safety. Safety is found in being reminded regularly of the same things. It doesn't mean you need to hear the very same truths the exact same way every time. Because that's not what the Bible does. That's not how the Bible presents it. But if you've been a Christian for a while, then you would only be hearing and learning, then you should only be hearing and learning the same truths proclaimed week after week. You hear how these truths apply to your life in different ways. And this is the way that you are constantly sanctified throughout your life. That's how it happens. Isn't that exactly what happens in every trial? There are a variety of different trials that we all go through all the time. And the way that God sanctifies us in those trials is by us seeing and putting into practice the same truths that we've always known, but in a way that applies to this circumstance. That's why you will never ever in your life run into a problem or a trial that the Bible is not sufficient to bring you through in a holy way. You never will. You cannot. Beloved, flee from the consumer mindset of this culture that continually wants you to pursue the new and improved. That's fine for cars and computers, but it must be far from your thinking when it comes to that which is truly important, to that which is eternal. Pursuing the new and improved is the pathway to accepting false teaching. You need nothing new. You need nothing innovative because these truths are eternal. These are eternal truths. And while you may know them well, and you may even know all of them, you will never know them fully. Never. 
These are eternal truths. You will live your entire life on this earth, and there will not be one single biblical truth that you could not spend another lifetime learning to understand more deeply. So seek to regularly be reminded of the same things. And what are the same things that we need to hear over and over again? Well, when Paul is saying that, that could refer to many of the repeated themes throughout the book. Many of them. But for now, let's just look at three of those themes that we can actually see represented in that first part of verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So first, I just want to take you, yet to just take, take yet one more opportunity to point out that Paul once again refers to the Philippians as his brothers. We've pointed this out in several other places already and even spent a while on it a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was up here, so I'm not going to take too much time here. Not because you shouldn't hear the same truths over and over again, but because we've got a lot to get to this morning. But the fact that you have brothers and sisters, sisters in Christ, a true family bond as the adopted children of God, that in this room with you are fellow co-heirs with Christ, that's a truth you can never hear enough, that you can never think through enough. These people in here with you, all of those who are in Christ, they are your eternal family. Eternal. You have brothers and sisters here. Funerals for family and friends are sad because you know that you will never see that person again. But that's not the case with anyone here. There might be a brief time where we no longer see each other when death separates us in this life. But in light of how long eternity is, that's going to feel even like even less time than when we say goodbye on a Sunday morning and knowing that we'll see each other later that evening. The fact that we are real family, that we can together call out to our Father on behalf of one another, call out to our shared Father on behalf of one another, that is such a joy and a glorious privilege. How could you ever get over something like that? You're a part of this church. As long as you're alive, you can never be alone. You will always have this family that will never abandon you, that will never give up on you, that you can always go to for anything. You'll never have to bear a single burden by yourself. You have a family that loves you with a love and commitment that, is, that extends far beyond any earthly family bonds. We need reminded of this regularly. We can't be reminded of it enough. Secondly, look, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Anyone who is familiar at all with Philippians knows that one of the most prevalent themes throughout the book is joy and rejoicing. He commands it here. He commands it here. It's an imperative. The Apostle Paul commands rejoicing. And he knows that they've heard this from him before, but he doesn't care. They need to hear it again. Look, look at verse, look just a chapter over, chapter 4, verse 4. Look what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He does it twice in the same verse there. But what, if, what if they're sick of this command? What if they already know what he's going to say? I know, I know, Paul, rejoice in the Lord. I know where you're going with this. You cannot be reminded enough to rejoice in the Lord. Why, why is rejoicing something that we need to be reminded of over and over again? Because you only rejoice when you have the understanding, when, you have, when it's settled in your heart that something supremely good is taking place, no matter what's going on around me. The command to rejoice is the constant reminder to really trust that God is good and God is sovereign. If God is good and if God is in control, 
of all things than every single thing that we experience, every part of our lives, no matter how difficult it might be in that moment, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's for our good and for His glory. This is only good news for us and worth rejoicing over because of this this third third theme that we see implied in verse 1. So thirdly, a theme that we need to be reminded of often is our union in Christ. Our union in Christ. The the verse says that we are to rejoice in the Lord. It is our union in Christ that gives us the supreme reason to be joyful in all circumstances. And it is our union in Christ that makes us a true family with our fellow believers. Just that Simple little prepositional phrase, in the Lord. In the Lord is a reminder of the gospel message that Paul has already touched on so many facets of in this letter up until this point and will continue doing throughout the letter. The gospel message, it is so simple that we can explain the core tenets in just a few minutes, but so profound that we will never in our lives be able to mind the depths of it. Book after book throughout 2,000 years of Christian history has been written and teaching and expanding on various aspects of the gospel. And book after book will continue to come out because you can't get to the bottom of it. And even even if there are another 2,000 years of Christian history, we can be certain that there still will have not been enough books written to have fully covered every aspect of the gospel. It is an eternal truth. We need to be reminded of it all the time. It is so important that it is only possible for a Christian to ever exist as someone who is not rejoicing when they have lost sight of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way it's possible. It is impossible to simultaneously be thinking rightly about the gospel and be depressed and joyless. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. He created us in His own image. Mankind is the pinnacle of His creation. We were created that we might worship and serve Him. We were created that we might worship and serve Him, and instead of joyfully embracing this privilege, we rebelled. All of us in Adam rebelled against Him. Every human being born has been born with a sinful nature and now can do nothing but store up wrath for ourselves as we continually, extraordinarily fall short of God's righteous standard every second. None of us can do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God's standard of perfect obedience to His law. Justice demands that we all pay the penalty. And the just penalty for sinning against an infinite God can only be an infinite penalty punishment. Each of us deserve eternal hell, eternal punishment. If this were the end of it, that's the end of what we know of God. If God had left us where we deserve, there would be no such thing in this life as true joy. Merely temporary moments of relative painlessness before an eternity of sorrow. God, and the greatest act of love that could ever be conceived of, became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect life that we could never live, and he lived in our place. He obeyed in every place where we fail, and then he died in our place on the cross. He took the wrath of God that each of us would have needed eternity to absorb. He took it. As the perfect God-man, he took it all while on the cross. He then rose from the dead to show that death no longer has any final power for those who are in him. And now when we turn from our sinfulness and we place our trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our sins are paid in full. And even though we have never gone a day in our lives without sinning against God in many ways, The perfect obedience of Christ is credited to us. And He is now no longer only the God whom we are privileged to serve once again in our redeemed state, 
but he has adopted us as his very own children, heirs with one another and co-heirs with Christ. This is the gospel that you can never hear enough. You can never think through it enough. It is impossible to fail to rejoice in the Lord when you are thinking of these things. Everything that Paul writes, everything that Paul writes in all of his letters is just digging further and further into these gospel principles or demonstrating how they would work out in practical application. He's not thinking up anything new. He's not being innovative. He's not apologizing for it. To write the same things is no trouble for me. And he says, says it is these very same things that are safe for you. They're safe for you. The phrase connects to what he's about to say concerning false teachers. Verse 2 paints a dangerous warning about false teachers. And Paul wants them to remember that it is these same things, these same things that I repeat to you, that's where you will find safety from them. The word translated as safe is the word asphalos. It's the Greek word follow combined with the alpha privative negation. So swallow means to cause, to fall, or stumble. To cause, to fall, or stumble. So the word combined with the negation is to, is to describe something that remains standing or can't be overthrown. It's a strong word for safety. Remain standing, can't be overthrown. So Paul is saying that these things, these core truths about the gospel and all of the implications of the gospel that I am constantly reminding you of to the point where it's become really obvious, these very truths, these are the very truths that you need in order to keep from falling or stumbling when the false teachers arrive. And that all makes perfect sense because what is false teaching other than taking the gospel message and saying that it's not quite enough. That we need more. That there is something else that is also the gospel. That's what we're seeing today. All false teaching is in some way or another corruption of the gospel. So if you're constantly thinking through all the implications of the gospel, if it is always before you, if you are looking and studying every facet of it, and this is what you are doing all the time, if you are resolved to never move on from it, to never move away from it, to just continually go deeper into it, always rejoicing and glorying in it, then you will not be overthrown by false teaching. You will continue to stand Brothers and sisters, if we are going to stand firm in this age, an age where false teachers are more and more prevalent and more and more deceptive, then we need to be reminded regularly of the same things. These gospel truths, week in, week out, day in, day out, these things will cause you to rejoice in the Lord and you will not fall away. Point two Point two, the second essential practice that we need to develop if we are going to live in a time of prevalent false teaching is to be watching cautiously. Watching cautiously. Look again at verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For most people, we can see it's clear from these terms that Paul has a specific group of false teachers in mind. He has Judaizers in mind. It's important to note that these Judaizers, the people he's talking about in 3.2, they're, they're not the same opponents that he was talking about in 1.16 and 18. Right? The, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So even though that group in 116 through 18 tried to cause Paul much pain, he was still able to rejoice in the gospel being preached. He has no such praise for the work of the men in 3.2, the Judaizers. 
There is nothing commendable, nothing to rejoice in with a ministry of any group that claims the name of Christ and maligns the gospel. There is nothing good there. It is only bad. Most of you, are, if you've been in the church a while, you're familiar with the Judaizers and their practices, but they were one of the earliest heretical groups that Paul dealt with, and he does deal with them regularly. They're a group that adopted many of the truths of the gospel and who Jesus was and why he came, but they also believed that it was necessary to then also convert to a type of Judaism. So you believe these gospel truths, that's fine, that's great, but then you need to fall under the ceremonial laws and some other Jewish customs. You need to fall under those and adopt those to your life as well. That is also necessary. The particular interest here is their concern with the mark of circumcision. Paul specifically has the Judaizers in mind, but the warning he gives here is instructive for us also as we deal with all false teaching. To begin with, let's notice that this is, a, this is again, this is a command. This is imperative. And the command is what? It's to look out. Look out or beware. And he gives the command three times. Look out, look out, look out. There's emphasis on the importance of this command and that he doesn't just say, look out for the dogs, the evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. He does it three distinct times. The imperative form of the Greek verb translated as look out is actually in the text three separate times. The idea is that he is commanding them to notice, notice, see something that he expects would be easily or easy for them to miss. You'd only speak like this to someone who is in danger of something that is close to them, but they don't see. Or someone who is one step away from stepping on a landmine in a minefield. That type of thing. And not only that, but since the command is, is a present active one, it means this is something that they need to be constantly on the lookout for. Constantly. Look out. Look out. Look out. All your life. Look out. So he's telling them that needs, this needs to be something happening constantly. And since this is a command to the Philippians, and Paul has said elsewhere that false teaching is going to get worse, and Christ himself said it was going to get more and more deceptive as we get closer and closer to the end, then we need to realize that our life on this earth, as we listen to every single message coming from our culture, and especially come, even coming from evangelicalism, needs to be one of cautiously watching at every point. We need to realize that. We are at every moment walking through a spiritual minefield that never lets up. It, and you do not get through this minefield in this life. It never lets up. It's always there at every moment. In fact, the word... Uh, that you see in here translated as for or by in some translations is actually supplied by the translators to make the command sound, it, it kind of makes it sound better to our, to our English hearing ears. The commands literally read, look out, the dogs. Look out, the evil workers. Look out, the mutilators. Again, emphasizing the fact that they are not looking necessarily out for something that could potentially be there at some point in time, but something that is certainly there right now. And so I want to raise the importance of this command in your view because it is being minimized as something of little to no importance right now. And the idea of being a, in Christianity, a heresy hunter... It's kind of a derogatory term for Christians who appear to give all of their time to critically analyzing every single thing that they hear and have turned, uh, they've essentially turned the Great Commission into nothing more than finding opportunities to point out apostasy. That's certainly a danger you can fall in. Certainly there's a danger in turning the Christian walk into nothing more than finding apostasy in everything. So if, you, if you're familiar with the, the so-called ministry of Service Christi, then you know this. 
If you are not familiar with him, don't waste your time getting familiar with him. His entire ministry is comprised of of weeding out apostasy in everything. He has found so-called apostasy in, okay, in many people who are truly heretics, but in many people who aren't. He, He takes every single word that someone might say or every single association or secondary association that someone has ever had and uses it as a license to call every well-known teacher in existence a heretic. He, I, I, can't, I can't think of a single prominent evangelical voice that he has not labeled a heretic in some way or another, if, you're, if you've seen his ministry at all. He has about the most joyless, angry ministry ministry I've ever seen in my life. It's like he sees... Philippians 3.2, and understands it to be the primary passage in the entire Bible of greater importance to our lives than the Great Commission or anything else. This is one of the reasons that verse 1 is so important to the command that we see in verse 2. Because one of the chief ways that we are made safe from false teaching is by rejoicing in the Lord and rehearsing the same truths that we hear over and over again. Paul is not here commanding us to give our lives completely to the task of looking out for false teachers. And even if some people have totally overemphasized it and have taken it to a next, uh, next level like, like Service Christi, we can't let that misuse keep us from realizing that Paul is in fact making an important point. He wants us to see this as important. Because the greater problem in our culture is not people taking this command too seriously and to the neglect of other commands. The much greater problem is the minimization of this command to the point of almost complete neglect. For every service Christi out there, there are 50 evangelical leaders and teachers who don't take this command seriously at all. False teaching is everywhere. It's everywhere. If you walk into a Christian bookstore and throw a dart randomly, you are far more likely to hit a book containing false teaching than anything orthodox. You're far more likely to hear a false teacher or false teaching in a Christian song or on most Christian radio stations than you are to hear the pure gospel. If you were to put your finger in the phone book on some random church to visit on some given, any given Sunday, you are far more likely to walk into a bad false teaching church than you are a good gospel preaching one. There's a temptation to not take this command seriously because of the current evangelical climate that will make you out to be divisive. That temptation is there. As you see countless Christian teacher after teacher apologizing for ever having taken such an intolerant view of what is right and what is wrong. We see that it is becoming an increasing temptation to not take this command with the seriousness that Paul gives it as we watch this play out in our culture. But you can see that it is the neglect of this command, the neglect of this command that has led to the current crisis of theology that we are in. You can literally be, believe anything in this culture and call yourself a Christian. Anything. But that's how badly we need a discernment and to take this command seriously. I, just, to, just to prove this, I found books on what it means to be a Christian Satanist. A Christian Satanist. The word Christian is an adjective that means almost nothing in this culture. We cannot afford to take lightly what Paul uses, that Paul uses some of the strongest possible language to warn us of. While Paul certainly has specific, has the specific category of Judaizers in mind, as all three of these derogatory terms there are actually, when you study, they're actually cleverly selected to go after this specific group. It is important to see this because at first glance you can read this verse and think Paul just kind of suddenly loses his temper and starts calling people names. But that's not the case. While we should note that there is no denying that these are meant to be derogatory, defamatory, to bring these people down, 
Paul has taken his time to select appropriate words. He's not going off the cuff. He's not losing his temper. He has chosen these words specifically to attack in kind of an ironic way the different parts of the Judaizing arguments. The presence of the definite article before each of these terms is actually an invitation for us to stop and think of Paul's specific use of each one as an individual aspect of his argument. So again, rather than having a single article govern the whole group of terms, rather than doing that, these, these all need to be considered individually. So first he calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. This is actually the only time in any of his letters that Paul uses the term dogs in any of his writing. Jewish, and he does this specifically. Jewish rabbis and others would use the term dogs to refer to Gentiles who were outside of the covenant. It was a common designation from from the Jews and from um, also from the Judaizers and Pharisees at that time. Jesus even recognizes that as a term that's being used. It's a common derogatory designation that was used to, to kind of magnify their own privileged place and to slander the lowly place of the Gentiles. So it makes sense that it is a, that it is a term that Judaizers would use for Christians for Christians who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ, but would refuse to then embrace the ceremonial laws and customs of Judaism. Makes sense that they would use this term. Dogs were not like they are in our, in our culture at that time. I know some of you think, that's, that's nice, I like dogs. They weren't pets. They were dirty, they were dangerous, they were disgusting. They roamed the streets in little packs and they ate dead things off the road. Dogs were disgusting creatures. And there are certain countries today that you can still visit and you can see the same thing. On all those mission trips that this church used to send us to, to Tijuana, when we were in high school, when I was in high school, uh, we would see dogs like that all over. They are running around. They'd follow right behind you. Many of them had rabies. If you were eating outside, dogs would start gathering around you like ducks at a duck pond when you get out a piece of bread. Um... One time when we were, I got bit by a dog in Tijuana, is chasing and nipping at my ankles. Throughout the Bible, this term, dogs, represents an extremely insulting way of referring to people who are seen as unworthy, as those who must remain outside. Even, actually, even in the last chapter of the Bible, this imagery is used. In Revelation 22:15, we're told that the dogs are found outside the New Jerusalem with the sorcerers, with the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. This is how derogatory that word was and what the Judaizers meant when they called people dogs. They are those people who have no part in the kingdom. Those who are below the chosen people. So this is what Paul is referring to when he flips it on them and calls them the dogs. Paul is taking that term and using it on them. They are, they are the dogs. They are the ones who stand outside the covenant people. He's saying that these are the people, the ones who deny the gospel by trying to add to it. They are the true dogs. They are the ones who have no part in the table fellowship of the Lord. They are the ones who are actually scavenging for scraps and biting at the heels of those who are truly saved. These are the unconverted ones who actually stand outside the kingdom. That is what Paul is doing with this. So he refers to them as dogs, and he also refers to them as evildoers. It actually says evil laborers. That's important. That same word that's translated as, as laborers there, is uh, doers there. Laborers can also be translated as workmen. Most commentators see Paul using the word actually to poke at the fact that, that these are the people who are trying to add works to the gospel. Which is, again, a definite intentional dig at the Judaizers. But it is also to help us to distinguish in our minds those who simply do evil because that is all we can do in our sinful nature. So we can have that kind of category for 
the sinful culture in general. Eh, they just can't do anything but sin. That's, that's just kind of who they are. That's what, what they do. Paul wants you to not think about that. that, that way of thinking about them. He emphasizes by using this word that they are putting effort into their evil. They are working at it. They are laboring for it. They are people who call themselves Christians and they're laboring, they're working, they're studying, they're writing, they're traveling for the purpose of deceiving Christians. They might not state it like that, but they're all over this culture. That's what they are doing. They're studying books. They're studying history. They're staying up late at night, researching ways to present their arguments. They're studying the Bible in ways for the purpose to help them to be more equipped to deceive Christians. You can see this throughout all of woke Christianity right now. They're studying, they're outworking many people to a greater and greater extent, developing language that is similar to Christian language, looking at every angle of certain passages in Scripture to find ways to present it to you in a way that will be appealing to Christians, but they're just adding to the gospel. They're doing everything they can to add works as necessary to the gospel. This isn't just some good-natured people who have read the Bible wrong, although there might be a few of those in there. But the ones out there who are really trying to push it, the ones out there who are really making it into a non-negotiable, the ones who are either directly saying or strongly implying that we have never actually had the gospel right, they are at work they are putting in hours, sweat and blood to deceive you. Again, not all of them would say it like that, but that's what's going on. The Judaizers also liked to use all of the same scriptures, draw from principles that Christians would be familiar with. False teachers aren't just people, aren't people who just got lazy with the text. They're actively working. And so go back to the minefield illustration. These aren't just uncaring people who have a task of mine laying to complete, and so they just kind of lay them all down wherever they can so they can go home. So they're just putting them in plain sight. These are people working hard to hide them. Putting in, again, the hours, the toil, the blood, the sweat, the blood, the sweat to hide them from you. To make it look just as normal as possible. Because the intention is to kill you. To kill your faith. That is why Paul is so adamant. Watch out. Watch out, evil workers. He also says those who mutilate the flesh. Again, this is a, a really particular jab at the Judaizers teaching that circumcision is required to be a true Christian. Paul is pointing out that any circumcision that is performed in in an effort to please God or an effort to receive salvation is nothing more than body mutilation. It accomplishes nothing. Paul is saying that in doing this action, in order to obtain salvation... They are actually more like the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 who would cut themselves to try and get their God's attention than they are like true teachers of God. Paul is adamant in Galatians 6.15 that circumcision means nothing. means nothing in their teaching that it is essential. All rituals, Jewish or otherwise, when practiced, in disregard for the gospel or in an effort to complete the gospel, they are no different than any other pagan ritual. No different. All those people out there saying, you need to add this to your gospel. This needs to be part of it. This is part of what repentance is. 
That's pagan rituals. Folks, we live in a culture where Christian leaders and and, and pastors are minimizing every aspect of the gospel. Every aspect. They malign the character of God. They make him out to be close to our level. They downplay his holiness. They minimize all of his attributes that are hard to understand and only focus on the ones that are easier for us. So they malign the character of God and then they elevate and exalt man. And they minimize the sin that separates us from a holy God. That is everywhere. Okay, if you remember, I don't know how long ago when I read those 20 titles from the most popular Christian books, they were all about yourself, self-improvement. Feel better about yourself. So they malign the character of God. They elevate and exalt man. And with Christ, they have made Christ into, into someone who is more of a friend than he is a savior. More of someone who just kind of says nice, loving things to you all the time. And isn't Lord, not the perfect God-man who sacrificed for us. So they malign God. They elevate man. They excuse sin. They make Christ into someone he is not. And they have made repentance into something that it is not. It's no longer turning from our sins. But rather, if you hear the word repentance most of the time now, it's in reference from turning from your traditional understanding of sin. Turning from all, repent of your previous intolerance. Whether it be explicit or implicit. Every, go down, God, man, Christ response. You go down every one of those core tenets of the gospel. And they have changed them. Well, brothers and sisters, the prevalence of false teaching in our culture is far greater and more varied than anything the Philippians could have seen. Again, just as every Greek city captured by Rome eventually embraced the parts of their culture that Rome let them keep, and then they slowly became more and more Roman. Even so, many in our culture today, many Christians in our culture today, are falling all over themselves to accept that olive branch. Accept the olive branch that this godless culture offers them, and they are quickly losing all identity as a Christian, and really now just a part of the culture. Christian culture, but again, Christian is just an adjective that can mean anything. We must take Paul's warning with the seriousness with which he intended. We, we have to watch out. Watch out. To live in this culture of deception, we must be regularly and constantly watching cautiously. And we must long to be reminded regularly of the same gospel truths that we have always known to joyfully spend our lives digging deeper and deeper into the core truths of our God and his glorious gospel. If we're committed to this, then we can be sure that the allure of false teaching will have no effect on us. We will stand in the end. We'll always clearly see that poison tip on every olive branch extended to us by this antichrist culture. Well, there's one more practice that I want us to see that Christians living in the constant presence of false teaching must be committed to, and we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for this time. Thank you for your fully sufficient word. Lord God, is it 
not only raises our attention to the danger that we're in, helps us to see clearly the culture that you've called us to live as your people in, to be your church in. It not only alerts us to that and the seriousness of the situation we're in, but also it gives us all we need to navigate this culture, to stand firmly. God, I pray that we would be a church that is discerning, that is lovingly discerning, that is watching out. It doesn't take everything this culture gives us and just accept it, but filtering it all through the grid of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Pray that we would be a church who never tires and is consistently overjoyed with the same things, hearing the same things over and over again, be reminded of the same truths over and over again. Lord, that we would be marked by that. In Jesus' name, amen.